The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Appreciate you all being here this morning. Those watching online, thanks for joining us today. Um, This past year has been a little bit stressful kind of troubling. We have lost many of our freedoms for the supposed sake of our safety. Under the Biden administration, our country really seems to be falling apart rather quickly. We have a crisis at the border. Thousands and thousands of illegal immigrants are pouring over the border, unchecked, unvaccinated, being shipped to all parts of our country. Interesting, huh? Inflation is skyrocketing. And now they're warning us that the supply chain may be interrupted because there's hundreds of ships sitting off the coast that can't come in and unload. They're saying it's because there's not enough workers. Our justice system is without a doubt, yes, it's anything but justice, But it's without a doubt targeting conservatives, while leftists can loot, burn, commit hate crimes with impunity. Last week, an 18-year-old went into the school and shot four people in Arlington, Texas. Within 24 hours, he was back on the street. People who walked into the Capitol building on January 6th with no guns, no weapons, Flags and cameras taking pictures, strolling around the Capitol. They're still locked up with no charges have been brought against them. They're still in prison. Justice system, that is, yeah. When we look at what's going on in the country and around the world, I think it makes us sick. It's like, what is happening here? It seems like evil is just taking over. Now, it is my opinion that our government, for the most part, is evil. They're out to destroy us and this country and to line their own pockets. People are losing their jobs today when they say there's not enough workers because they refuse to take an experimental vaccine for a disease that is 99.98% curable. According to VAERS, now, are you familiar with VAERS? It stands for Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. Notice the web address. This is a government site, okay? According to VAERS, the COVID-19 vax has been causing myocarditis and pericarditis among people ages 30 and younger. It has also caused Guillain-Barre syndrome, and blood clots in others. So because of the adverse reaction to this, many people, they don't want to get it. In the, in the United States from December 14th, this is from VAERS, 2020 through September 27th, 2021, VAERS received 8,164 reports of death among people who received the COVID-19 vaccine. Now let me explain something to you how this works, because this, this is a little bit tricky, Okay. You can only die from the vaccine 14 days after having both vaccines. 
Then you're considered fully vaccinated. So if you get the first vaccine and you die, that, that's not a death from the vaccine. If you get the second vaccine and die before the 14 days, that's not counted either. So these numbers are much higher. But they want to keep them low, so they count this. You have to get past 14 days and then have something happen. And so because of these facts, you know, a lot of people don't want to get it. It's experimental. They just don't want to take it. But our evil government is forcing people, take the shot or lose your job. Our government is mandating a medical procedure. This is just plain evil. So people are asking, why is God allowing all this evil? Why doesn't he do something? He is doing something. He's controlling it all. What if I told you that the Bible teaches us that it is Yahweh who creates evil? Isaiah 45.7. This is the, I talked to you about this last week, the version of the Bible called the Scripture 2009. I didn't change any of this. This is actually how they do it. It says, forming light and creating darkness, making peace and creating evil. I, Yahweh, do all these things. I love the way they take the yod heh vav instead of translating it Lord, they just leave it as the yod heh vav Yahweh. I, Yahweh, do all these things. So the evil that's going on in our country right now is very disheartening But I want to tell you, it brings me peace and comfort to know that my God is controlling it all. The God who loves me, the God who sent His Son to die for my sin, is controlling every event in time. And even though this evil makes me sick, I have this peace in knowing my Father's hand is on this. See, the Scriptures teach The absolute sovereignty of God. Now, I think almost any Christian will say they believe in the sovereignty of God. Until you press it. (laughs) How sovereign is he? Well, not that sovereign. No, he can't do this, he can't do that, All right. To say that God is sovereign is to say that he does as he pleases. Only as he pleases. Always as he pleases, and that whatever takes place in time is but the outworking of that which he has decreed from eternity. Look at Isaiah 46 10, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my purpose. This means that everything that happens, even all the evil, is according to the eternal plan of God. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way in paragraph 1, chapter 3. God, from all eternity, did by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatever comes to pass. I'm so glad for this truth. What if God had left the future to the will of fallen man? That would be really scary, okay? Now, in talking about this subject, Romans 9, I think, is probably one of the clearest chapters in our Bible in demonstrating God's absolute sovereignty. 
In Romans 9, Paul lays out the principle of sovereign election in verse 6. He says, For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. So we see there's two Israels. We have national Israel, and then we have true Israel, because they're not all part of true Israel who come from national Israel. Sovereign election, God's making choices. Then in verse 7 through 13, he illustrates that principle, and he tells us that God decides who will believe and undeservably be saved and who will rebel and deservingly be punished. Before they were born or had done anything good or evil, it says he loves Jacob and he hated Esau. That raises the question that comes up in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Is God being unfair in choosing one person over another? Well, in verse 15 through 18, He shows that God is just and righteous to give mercy to whom He wishes and to withhold it from whom He wishes. See, God is sovereign in the exercise of His mercy and His love. He is free and unconstrained from influences outside Himself when He decrees who will receive mercy and who will not. In verse 18 it says, So then, He has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. Now you might be thinking, boy, that's not what I've heard before. I mean, God's supposed to love everybody and treat everybody the same and fair and all this stuff, right? Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. But you have a responsibility to be a Berean and study it out for yourself. But this raises another question. If God saves whom He wills and hardens whom He wills, what's the obvious question? How can He hold me responsible for His choice? And that's exactly the question that Paul anticipates. And he says in verse 19, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? I mean, I can't resist God's will, so how can I be blamed for my unbelief? I mean, he hardened Pharaoh, and Pharaoh did just what God wanted him to do. He couldn't resist God's will. No man can. So why does he find fault and punish sinners? Please listen to me carefully here, believers. There would be no room for these objections, or that of verse 14 that we looked at, There'd be no room for these objections if Paul had been teaching that God chooses those whom he foresees would believe or that the ground of distinction was in the different conduct of men. It's very evident, therefore, that he's teaching no such doctrine. These questions wouldn't come up. Why does he still find fault? Is there injustice with God? You know, and how easy would it have been to answer the charge of injustice by saying, God chooses one and rejects another according to their works or according to their faith. The only reason that this question arises is because Paul is teaching so clearly that God chooses one and rejects another based solely on His own will. And that the destiny of men is determined by His sovereign pleasure alone. 
Have you ever asked the question, if God is sovereign and is decreed from all eternity, whatever takes place, how can I help be held responsible for the things I do? I mean, who can resist His will? If you've ever asked those questions, it's only because you understand what the Bible is teaching about the absolute sovereignty of God. I've heard this question raised many times. Now, we need to keep in mind that in Romans 9-11 through 11 here, Paul is dealing specifically with Israel. And these questions are coming from Israel. The Greek word for fault here is memphomai, and it means to blame. It has the idea of holding responsible. The question is reinforced by the consideration that no one can frustrate or resist God's will. And the Greek word here for will, bulemai. And it means resolve or purpose. Now, when talking about the will of God, we have to differentiate between what is called His moral will and what is called His sovereign will. Look at the way will is used in these two passages. He asked, Paul asked, who can resist His will? And then he says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, does the term will mean the same in both of these passages? No. Romans 9 is using the term will to speak of God's sovereign decree. To speak, and then in 1 Thessalonians 4, he used the term will to speak of God's revealed will of precept or his moral will, his moral decree. The term will is ambiguous and it has to be determined from the context. The Ten Commandments are God's preceptive will. There's moral will. They command men to do this and to refrain from doing that. But they state what ought to be done, but they neither state nor cause what is done. God's decretive will, however, causes every event. Now, it might be helpful to clarify the term will if it weren't applied to the precepts. We could call them commandments or requirements, law, whatever, but refrain from using will for those. God's sovereign will is secret until it happens. Our concern is to be obedient to the moral commands of God. That's what we have. The moral will of God. We need to know it. We need to be submissive to it. The sovereign will will only know as we look back. But the Scripture commands all men to believe on the Lord Yeshua the Christ. But in His sovereign will, He has chosen some to believe. And He's chosen to harden the rest. So how can God blame people for not believing when He has decreed that they be hardened? No one can resist His will. That's a hard question. How can God pour out His wrath on people for not believing when He has hardened them in unbelief? Well, Paul answers the anticipated objection by quoting what God said in response to a similar complaint made by Israel in Isaiah's prophecy. In verse 20 he says, But who are you, O man? To answer back to God. Well, what is molded? Say to his molder, why have you made me like this? I mean, clearly Israel is in view here as the molded in this illustration because Paul quotes this from Isaiah 29, 16. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say to its maker... He did not make me, or the thing formed say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. 
See, Israel had no right to criticize God for shaping her for a particular purpose of his own choosing. And really, Israel had nothing to complain about since God had formed her for an honorable use. But obviously, the same is true of individuals. Again, in Isaiah, we read this in 49, 9-10. Woe to him who strives... Woe to him who striveth with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who formed it, what are you making? This is hilarious if you think about it, people, okay? Or your work has no handles. In other words, hey, you made me, where's my handles? You know, no, that doesn't happen, okay? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, With what are you in labor? See, the passage is Israel's response on hearing that Cyrus had been raised up by God to serve his purposes. We can't separate the quoted text in Romans from the original context of Israel's complaint to God about the decisions he has made. So does the clay ask the potter questions? That's absurd. And man is so far from comprehending the mind of the omniscient God as clay is from comprehending the mind of the potter. We need to realize the limits of our thinking. Isaiah 55, 8 says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. We need to understand that. Psalm 50, verse 21 says, These things you have done, and I've been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Martin Luther said this to Erasmus. He says, Mere human reason can never comprehend how God is good and merciful. And therefore you make to yourself a God of your own fancy, who hardens nobody, condemns nobody, pities everybody. You cannot comprehend how a just God can condemn those who are born in sin and cannot help themselves, but must, by necessity of their natural constitution, continue in sin and remain children of wrath? The answer is God is incomprehensible throughout, and therefore His justice, as well as His other attributes, must be incomprehensible. And that's the bottom line. He's saying, listen, why do we think we can understand God or question His judgments or tell Him what He needs to do? And it's on this very ground that Paul exclaims in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. Now, His judgments couldn't be past finding out. They couldn't be inscrutable if we could always perceive them to be just. Look at me at Jeremiah 18. Look at these 11 verses here. He lays it out kind of clearly in Jeremiah. He says, The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh, Arise, go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at the wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel. Oh, something happened to this one. Guess what? Squish it, start over. What? The clay complains, hey, wait a minute. I was wanting to be that thing you were making in the first place. No. He goes on, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of Yahweh came to me, O house of Israel. Can I not do with you as this potter has done? Declares Yahweh. 
Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plan it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Now therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return every one of you from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. Now, I think the analogy here is obvious. The potter makes choices and the clay has no part in those choices. He doesn't consult the clay. The clay has nothing to say about this, okay? Romans 9.20. Now, Paul doesn't answer the question, but he appeals to a reverential silence which the majesty of God demands from us. Note the contrast here. He says, O man, God. That's the contrast. How can man question God? Now, the word answer back here comes from the Greek word antipokrinomai. Write that down. It's a compound word from anti, meaning opposite, contrast, against, and apokrinomai, to conclude for oneself, to begin to speak, to contradict or dispute. So, antipokrinomai denotes disputation and resistance. He says, who are you, old man, to resist God? To dispute with God. It's not merely an attempt to procure an answer to a difficult question. I don't think God minds being questioned. This is an argument. How can man with his infantile puny pea brain speak against the Almighty God? How can he do that? But who are you, O oh man? He says. The emphasis here falls on you. Who are you? Or who do you think you are? I mean, if you find yourself questioning God, you have played the fool. Because you're saying, because I can't figure this out, there must be something wrong with God. Paul says this, shut your mouth and admit that you know very little. God is omniscient and we are ignorant. How can we speak against Him? Have you ever been in the presence of a really great mind? Someone you just felt totally unworthy to question or contradict? <laughs> How can we ever question or contradict God? I mean, Paul gives us an analogy from the Hebrew Scripture that is an absurdity. He says, has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. Now notice that the clay comes from the same lump. This is not the lump of innocent, deserving individuals. 
Okay? This is the lump of fallen man, dead in sin, under the wrath of God. Each of us deserves the wrath of God, but God has poured out His wrath on His Son for the sake of His elect. And so the elect get mercy. The word right here is the Greek word exousia, and it means authority or right. What gives God the absolute authority over man? Thank you. Creation. It's a one-word answer. Creation. Think about that for a minute. You know, because people question God all the time. Who does he think he is? Well, he thinks he's God. Okay? And if you understand, but we had this, we have such a low view of God today that we want to be able to handle him. We want to be able to, you know, manipulate him and get him to do what we want him to do. You know, we got the name it, claim it, blab it, grab it people out there, and they're ordering God to do whatever, you know, they say he should do. He's a cosmic bellhop here to serve us. We have such a low view of God that we don't understand this. He created us, spoke the word, and we came into being. And He can do whatever He wants with His creation. Genesis 1.1, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In the great expanse of eternity, which stretches beyond Genesis 1.1, the universe was unborn and creation existed only in the mind of God. He existed alone as the Trinity. And in His sovereign majesty, God dwelt alone. Then at some point in time, He made Himself a family of other gods. He created gods to be part of His divine counsel, part of His family. And then, later, He made man. Genesis 1.27, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him, male and female. He created them. Men are a direct creation of God. Over and over in the text of Genesis, it says, God said, and it was so. God created out of nothing. Ex nihilio. And after God created something, the thing that He created had no right to complain. But boy, His creation complains. The creation has no right to say, why did you make me this way? See, a flamingo has no right to complain because it's not an elephant. I mean, God decided to create a world, and a world by definition includes differences. The different things have no right to hold God responsible for the qualities they have or the qualities they lack. God is responsible to no one. Who can hold Him responsible? There's no higher authority. And so God distributes wings, horns, legs, and minds just as it suited Him. No one has any claim of God. Out of His own free choice, He created gods. He created angels. He created the earth, mountains, deserts, rivers, lakes, insects, and elephants, and everything in between. And He gave elephants four legs, thick ones. And He gave flamingos... Two legs. Little skinny ones. Why? Why? Because he wanted to. Because he wanted to. Look at Psalm 135.6. I love this verse. Whatever Yahweh pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the sea and all deeps. God just does whatever he wants to. Why? Because he's God. 
To understand the Bible, you need to realize that God is the sovereign creator. There's no law superior to him that commands, Thou shalt not make elephants with four legs. Thou shalt not hate Esau. Thou shalt not harden Pharaoh's heart. The ultimate answer to all objections is the relative positions of creator and creature. All objections presuppose that man is in some way or another independent of God and has obtained from somewhere or achieved by his own efforts some right over against him. You know, many people, I think, that they suppose that once they were created, that now he or she can claim that God is obligated to treat them the way they want to be treated, not the way God decides to treat them. In other words, you made me, now you have some, you got to treat me in this right way. Man has rights, they say, that God must respect. On the contrary, man has no rights in opposition to God. Whatever rights a man has are those that God has decided to give him. God as creator can give, withhold, or retake any rights he pleases. Whatever rights he gives to a man are a gift and not a debt. No one has any claims over the creator. Again, this may sound foreign to a lot of people because we have you know, lowered God down to our own understanding. Remember in the book of Job when Job began to question God? It started out good, right? Lord gave, Lord take away, blessed be the name of the God, shut up woman, God has a right to do this or that, you know, and he just was, he was doing good. Then he started getting weary. He started questioning God. He wanted a legal hearing to prove the injustices that were going on against him. And God didn't explain his ways to Job. He exhibited them. And he took them where? Creation. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know. Surely you know. In other words, Job, look at creation. Did you help? Do you understand any of this? No. So shut up. Since God is God, who dare challenge his prerogative? Well, Paul concludes with three verses to apply his analogies. Says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath, what? Why would God want to show his wrath? Well, it's one of his attributes. He could, don't you want to show your attributes? <laughs> you know, show his wrath and make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. In order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but from the Gentile. See, the grand object of God, both in the election and the reprobation of man, is that which is paramount to all else, the creation of the universe, namely His own glory. That's why God does things, for His glory. And what if God, exercising His sovereign right of choice, makes some vessels of mercy while others are created for wrath? Does He have a right to display His wrath? Sure He does. Does He have a right to display His justice? Yes. Wrath and justice are as much part of His character as mercy and grace. But we don't hear about those. We don't want to talk about those. Those are something you know we just rather... Pretend God didn't have, okay? Because we don't like those, okay? Desiring to show His wrath. 
This speaks of the will of purpose. This speaks of sovereign will. God wants to show His wrath because He wants to reveal Himself. And He's a God of wrath. It's one of His attributes. Deuteronomy 4.24 For Yahweh your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. You know, I... (laughs) I read this verse and I say, this would be a great bumper sticker. I had someone make me some bumper stickers with this on it and send it to me. <laughs> I thought, that's a pretty, you don't, not the kind of thing you normally see on a bumper sticker, right? But God is a God of wrath. Therefore, the entrance of sin, listen to me, the entrance of sin into the world was necessary so that God could manifest His wrath and His judgment and His holy anger because these are part of His character. Now, for ages, theologians have argued and debated over the origin of evil. Let me tell you plainly, it was God's will that sin should enter the world. He decreed it. Now, if that shocks you, it's far more shocking to insist that sin has invaded the world against God's will. Okay? Think about that. Well, God couldn't do anything about it. He's just sitting up there frustrated. He couldn't stop this. If sin invaded the world against His will, He's not omnipotent. Some folks say that God just permitted sin to enter the world. Let me just say, permission is not a word to use with God. In other words, you know, when we have permission, it's like, I don't really want you to do that, but okay. No. Nothing in the universe can be independent of the omnipotent Creator. For in Him we live and move and have our being. Therefore, the idea of permission makes no sense when talking about God. Now, in his book, Reasons to Believe, R.C. Sproul Sr. was examining all the best and the most credible arguments for the origin of evil. Trying to figure it out. How, why is there evil in the world? And after he examined some of the different theodicies, he concludes by saying this. These theodicies, you know what a theodicy is, we've been over that, right? It's a defense of God. Okay, we're defending God, that's a theodicy. So these people are trying to defend God. These theodicies are but a few of the more popular of the multitude of theories that have been offered as possible solution to the enigma of sin. I'm not satisfied with any of them. It's not my intent to be devil's advocate or to lend assistance to those who reject Christianity because of these objections. I'm not trying to give the skeptic more ammunition than he may already have. I'm trying to make it clear that the problem is a severe one, one for which I have no adequate solution. I do not know how evil could originate with a good God. I'm baffled by it, and it remains a troublesome mystery to me. So, Sproul Sr. is unable to address why there's... Why is the world full of evil? He'd look at our current situation. He's not alive anymore. But if he was, he'd look at our current situation. All this evil in the world, I don't understand it. It's just wild. No explanation. Because he believes God is passive over evil. Simply permitting it. How terrifying is that? As we look into the world where evil is rampant, and it is in our world, in our culture, and literally in the world today. It'd be terrifying to think that all this stuff is being allowed to happen. God's just sitting back saying, "Ah, I don't really want it, but okay, whatever. What most Christians believe about God and evil is just plain old deism. Now, deism is a belief that God created the world. He 
like a watch. He cranked it up and set it aside and said, go for it. And he stepped out of the picture. Just let, let it go. So the world's just running on its own, okay? And God's just this idle spectator who's just kind of sitting back and watching, looking at it from a distance. That's not God. See, God's shaping everything to the ultimate promotion of His own glory. Now, although R.C. Sproul Sr. can't answer the question of the origin of evil, his son can. And I've heard him actually say that at a Q&A section. Someone was talking to him about this. He goes, I don't know. Ask my son. He knows. <laughs> they asked him about the origin of evil. Ask my son. He knows. I'm like, that's pretty good. Your son's a lot smarter than you. So in his book, in, in Junior's book, called Almighty Over All, and listen, if you have not read this book, this should be on your reading list. Almighty Overall. It is an outstanding book. He did a great job. I think he, I just think it's, it's a great layout of the supralapsarian view of Scripture, okay? So, in chapter 3 of the book, which is entitled, Who Done It? Sproul opens a chapter with introducing the problem like a mystery story. And his conclusion is that of the superlapsarian position, specifically that God was the one who caused the sin of man in the garden. He goes through who's in the garden. We got Adam, we got Eve, we got a serpent, we got God. Who, which one of these players is capable of having someone do sin, you know? And it goes through it. It's, it's, it's very interesting, all right? And he says, God is the one who caused the sin of man in the garden by changing the inclination of Adam and Eve towards that which is evil. Sproul writes this, Junior, Every Bible-believing Christian must conclude at least that God, in some sense, desired that man would fall into sin. God wills all things to come to pass. It's in His power to stop whatever might come to pass. We agree with that, right? He could stop whatever He wants. It is within his omniscience to imagine every possible turn of events and to choose that chain of events which most pleases him. But wait a minute. Isn't it impossible for God to do evil? He can't sin. I am not accusing God of sinning. I am suggesting he created sin. So Sproul Jr. is a supralapsarian, as am I, but his father was an infralapsarian. And <laughs> I know, let's don't get all hung up on that. Uh, <laughs> he doesn't believe... The primary difference between the lapsarian viewpoints is the order of the divine decrees. Okay? In other words, you know, the infralap position would say, well, sin happened, and then God said, okay, sin, now i got to do this. So now he made another... So the superlapsarian position says, God sat down and he said, here's what's happening, beginning to end laid out every point of it, including sin, okay, and then worked the plan from there. Edwin H. Palmer writes this, To emphasize the sovereignty of God even more, it is necessary to point out that everything is foreordained by God. It is even biblical to say that God has foreordained sin. If sin was outside the plan of God, then not a single important affair of life would be ruled by God. Okay, why? How come he goes on to explain, for what action of man is perfectly good? Thus, once again, we confess with full force the absolute sovereignty of God. He predestines, elects, and foreordains. A.W. Pink, 
another great book on the sovereignty of God, writes this, Clearly it was the divine will that sin should enter the world, or it would not have done so. That's simple, isn't it? You get that? Of course it was His will, or it wouldn't have happened. We already read that in the psalm. God does what He pleases, right? God has the power to prevent it. Nothing ever comes to pass except what He decreed. God's decree that sin should enter this world was a secret hid in Himself. I think it should be obvious that sinful human nature is much more apt to deny or to circumscribe God's authority in favor of human independence than to exaggerate the power of God. Okay? We, don't, we exaggerate the power of man, not the power of God. God brings to pass in time what He has decreed in eternity. There is evil in our world because God decreed it and then created it for His own glory. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. All things, people, including sin, were created by God. Let's look at Isaiah 45.7. This is the ESV. It says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. What is calamity? I fall down? Uh, something happened? What, what's it? I am Yahweh who does all these things. The word calamity here, this is just a bad translation. Okay? Because translators, they, they don't want to put evil there. That doesn't sound right, does it? Well, the Scripture does. Okay? And Young's does. Because it's a literal translation. So raw is evil. And so he didn't create calamity. He created evil. Again, the scripture here is a much more accurate translation. Now, when you say that God created evil, most Christians go into a paroxysm. I mean, it drives them crazy. Okay, no, God only does good and nice and what we like. Yet the Bible is filled with this idea. See, evil is not something that most Christians would have associate with God. They say, that Satan does evil. God only does good. So you look at our world, you see all the evil in the world, and you say, Satan must be doing it. And you hear that, oh, oh man. Every, you know, the vaccine is the mark of the beast. Did you know that? And now you can't buy or sell. I mean, it might be getting to that point, right? New York City, you can't go in a restaurant if you don't have the vaccine. So they're like, oh my word, I can't buy or sell. This is scripture being fulfilled. Oh, calm down, people. We're way out of line here with this, okay? Way, way out of line. The word calamity here is much better evil, okay? Much better is translated evil. It's a much more accurate translation, all right? One commentator remarks on the word evil in this text by saying this. He said, the Hebrew ra, that's the Hebrew word translated evil here, ra, is translated sorrow, wretchedness, adversity, afflictions, calamities, but is never translated sin. God created evil, listen to this, how his explanation, God created evil only in the sense that he made sorrow, wretchedness, and so forth to be the sure fruit of sin. Now, the question would be, how could he have made such a statement? He must have examined every instance of raw in the Hebrew text, and then have determined that in no cases it is translated sin. 
if in fact he did a study of Ra in the Hebrew text, he would, not have, he would have had to notice that Ra in Genesis 5 and a number of other places is translated wickedness. Because in fact, Ra is translated wickedness some 50 times in the Tanakh. Let's look at several places in Scripture where we see Ra as translated evil. Genesis 2.9 And out of the ground, Yahweh God made a spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good to food. The tree of the life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and calamity. No. Evil. Good and evil. This is raw. This is the knowledge not of sorrow and calamity. It's primary knowledge of disobedience and sin. In Genesis 6-5, Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. People, please notice that verse. Notice what God is saying. I look at man, he's mostly good. He's mostly a wonderful person. He just, you know, so pleases me. No, I want you to know that the wickedness of man is great. And that every intention of the thought of his heart is evil continually. That's man. And people say, well, if Satan's not around today, why so much evil in the world? There's your answer. Men are evil. And God's controlling evil. Okay? God didn't see adversity or calamity in their hearts. He saw sinful thoughts. Raw is used here, clearly means sin. And the same is true of Genesis 8.21. And when Yahweh smelled the pleasing aroma, Yahweh said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Did you get that promise? But people say he's going to burn up the earth. Well, no, he said he'd never again. Oh, yeah, he meant he wasn't going to drown you again. Next time he's going to fry you. Oh, that's comforting. I'm glad. I'm glad I don't have to drown, you know. Much rather be fried. No, he says, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Why? Because the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Amen. Get that. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. Now, toward the end of Genesis, Ra refers to an alleged theft, many sins from which the angel had redeemed Jacob, and three times had the brothers sinned against Joseph. You can study the whole Tanakh for yourself, and you will see that Ra often means sin as distinct from its punishment. Amos 3.6 says, Is a trumpet blown in a city, and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless Yahweh does it? Think about that. Does disaster come unless Yahweh does it? In other words, God's sovereign. He's controlling everything. He's in absolute control of everything that happens, both good and evil. He is sovereign. Nothing happens outside His will. Ephesians 1.11 In Him we obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. In other words, He laid out a plan. He's working the plan. And he works all things, not some things, after the counsel of that will. Now, I know that people don't like it when you say that God created sin, but that's what the Scripture says. I'm not really comfortable with it either. I'm like, yeah, I hate even saying that sometimes, but that's what the Bible says. Oh, if the Bible says it, let's not be afraid to say it. So let me ask you something to just kind of push this home here. Is murder sin? Do it like this. 
Do it like this, please. <laughs> yes. Murder is sin. Murder bad, okay? Murder is sin. So let me ask you this. Was crucifying Yeshua a sin? Was Yeshua's murder decreed by God? Yes, it was. Look at Luke twenty two twenty two. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. In other words, it's going to happen just like God planned, but the people who are doing it, they're going to be judged for it. So who determined this? Well, God did, of course. And just in case you question that, I can prove it. Look at Acts 2.23. This Yeshua delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Again, it was God's plan. Lawless men did it. They will be judged for it. Look at Acts 4.27.28. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Yeshua, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, people have a problem when you say that it was God's will that someone be murdered. Because, you know, that's, no, God couldn't do that. But what was the worst crime of murder ever committed? I mean, who was the only innocent person that was ever murdered? It was Yeshua. You might say, well, that's a special case. That just had to do with our redemption, right? Really? Well, what do you do with the case of Absalom? See, Absalom polluted his father's bed in an incestuous union, which committed committing a detestable crime when he did that. All right? We see it in 2 Samuel 16, 22. So they pitched the tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Okay? This is a declaration of war, basically, saying, I'm taking over. Uh, I'm in, I got the harem now. I'm ruling. I'm reigning. God declared this to be caused by him. Look what David's. He said to David, 2 Samuel 2, 12, 11, and 12. Thus says Yahweh, behold, I will raise up evil against you. Talking to David. Out of your own house. Think about what happened to David in his household. And all the kids and all the pain. I, I just think of David crying out at Absalom's death. You know, it just ripped his heart out. I will take your wives, he says, from before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. Neighbor, And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. So, this, God said it was going to happen and it happened. Listen, when men sin, God had decreed that they should perform the acts they did, but in carrying out the deeds, they were guilty because their own purpose in doing them was evil. Men are responsible for their sin. Genesis 50:20. This is a verse you all should know. It's a great verse in life to help you because someone's going to hurt you and you're going to say, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. So someone's doing evil, but God meant it for good. To bring about 
that many people should be kept alive as they are today. I mean, Joseph, he's looking at his brother, you meant evil against me, you hated me, you, you wanted the worst for me. But you know what? God meant that for their good. They stayed alive because of what they did in this sin. See, they considered murdering Joseph, but they changed their minds and they sold him into slavery. Their intentions were evil, but God controlled their wills. They could not have killed Joseph because God had decreed to send Joseph to Egypt for the purpose of later saving that family from starvation. So the brothers decided to sell Joseph and God controlled their decision. They're not free to will his death or to let him go either. Augustine said that men's sin proceeds from themselves. That in sinning they perform this or that action is from the power of God. Now that's important that we get that, people. Men sin, that men said proceeds from, men are evil continually, so they want to sin. God, that sinning they perform this or that action is from the power of God. God directs. God uses it. Proverbs 16, 1 says, The plans of the heart belong to man. You plan out, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. But the answer of the tongue is from Yahweh. The heart of man plans his way. But Yahweh establishes his steps. God is holy. And sin is contrary to his holy nature. Yet the existence and operation of it are according to his will. His eternal counsel counsel determines sin's course. It's really clear that that is what the Bible teaches. I understand we're not really comfortable with things like that. It's like it just doesn't seem to fit our scenario. Why did God decree evil? He tells us because he was desiring to show his wrath. He focuses on the great patience of God who keeps back the wrath from those who deserve judgment. Paul's argument emphasizes that the only thing that is not fair and just is that God's acted in mercy. Do you understand? That's not fair. That's not just. To demonstrate His wrath, and he says, make His power known. How does God make His power known? By judging sin. Sin provides a means for God to be glorified. Now, In light of our present situation, and in light of God controlling all evil, let me close with this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. God works all things together. Now, the context here seems to indicate all kinds of suffering, all kinds of persecution, but truly God works everything together For the good of his saints. Now, good here, the word here for good is the Greek word agathos. It refers to what is morally good. The text doesn't say that all things are intrinsically good or pleasant. They're not. Many things we deal with are not pleasant. They don't make us happy. They seem to be destructive to our lives. All things are not necessarily in themselves good. We know that. But God works them into good. That doesn't mean He works toward our short-term happiness or delight. He works towards what is best for us, doing what is eternally good in us and for us. But in all the experiences of life, even the most difficult and painful, God is still working things for our good. 
All things don't work together for good for everyone, people. There's a qualifier here. For those who love God. Now, hopefully you're thinking right now, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you love me, what's he say? Keep my commandments. So is do all things only work together for good for obedient Christians? Well, I would say that the beneficiaries of this promise are people who love God. Now, who are these? Well, I think he's referring to Christians here who love him positionally in Christ. But practically speaking, we know that not all believers love Christ because they don't obey. But in our text, Paul is talking about our positional love for Christ, as is clear from the qualifying phrase, to those who are called according to his purpose. The beneficiaries of this promise are those who once did not love God, but now love God because God himself has called them effectually from darkness to light, from unbelief to faith, from death to life. He has planted within them a love for himself. Believer, God has a purpose in everything that happens to you. And I want you to keep that in mind right now, today, in our culture, in everything that's happening that's going on right now. Our lives are not the haphazard result of the moving of blind chance. All that comes to pass in our lives is according to the eternal plan of the all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving, great God and our Father. Have you ever asked, why is this happening to me? Have you ever asked, why is this happening to our country? Listen, believer, it's happening because it's the will of God. God's sovereign will involves everything that takes place in life. All events in time proceed from His plan, and absolutely nothing takes place by chance. Now, if that's not comforting to you, it really should be. You say, well, yeah, but this stuff is still happening, and it's ruining my life, and it's bothering me, and, and it, you know, it's just crushing us. It's because it's the will of the Father, and all things are going to work together for good. Because you're a child of the king. And listen, when I understand God controls evil, I also understand a lot of other things about God. I understand that he loves me. He loved me so much he sent his son to die in my place. That's a lot of love. I know he's kind. I know he's gracious. I know his promises are faithful and steadfast. And when you start understanding all you know about God, this God controls evil It's just like a sigh of relief, like, ha, that's cool. God's got it under control. I can rest in Him. So don't let the circumstances we're facing, everything is happening. It's just, it's startling, it is, but just rest in the fact that as a child of God, not a thing can happen to you that's not part of the plan. And if it's part of the plan, it's for your benefit. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. Lord, I thank you for your absolute sovereignty. I thank you that you are God and we are not. Lord, please help us to understand just who you are. Help us to understand the idea that you are the creator and you have created us for your glory. Lord, help us not to try to manipulate, coerce, debate with you. May we bow 
before your sovereignty, Lord. Thank you, Father, for your patience with us, for your love for us. May we see your hand in every situation, no matter how bad. May we rest in knowing you're in control. Amen. Okay. Questions? Comments? <sighs> Why? I'm sorry. Kind of like the Truman Show. Kind of like the Truman Show, yeah. <laughs> it's being controlled. Stanley? Um, did you and Gary coordinate today? <laughs> yes, I know. Okay. No, I mean, we didn't. And that's why when he, as soon as he started talking about the wrath of God, I said, wrath of God? Why are you talking about that? I got that for later. Okay, that happens a lot. Okay. It just amazes me that, you know, just not just this time, but it happened lots of times, you know, that how we're in sync, whoever. Right. Just yeah, it's almost like a, a God thing. God's involved in some of this or something, you know? It's almost like God's involved. You know, I don't know why it is. I don't know, but we seem to attract smart out. <laughs> somebody, somebody. I won't mention. His, I won't mention his name, Rob Irwin. He says we missed you singing this morning. <laughs> yeah, you miss it like a headache, right? Someone asks, how does this differ from Islamic fatalism? It differs greatly from fatalism. Okay, God is in control. All right. Our God loves us. He's ruling and reigning. It's not fatalistic. It's peaceful to understand that God is putting all events together. I mean, you make choices. We all make choices every day, right? Do I feel like I wanted to go here, but now I'm dragged over here? No. Just make choices. And I know that God's behind it all. How, how does all this fit together? I don't know. But I know what the scriptures say. And I know I still make choices every day, and I agonize over some of the choices I make. Because mm-hmm. I know wrong choices can cost you, you know. I often just pray, Lord, open the doors where I'm allowed to go, and lock them tight where I'm not supposed to, because I'm moving. You know, and I'm banging into stuff. Okay, turn this way. Banging in, you know, and keep just keep moving forward. Uh, someone writes, David, really been enjoying the topical messages lately, proof being that my wife has really taken interest in the Bible and asking lots of questions. Thanks. Well, cool. Thank you. I love, <laughs> this is funny. I was talking to my wife about this last week. Since COVID hit, I've done more topical messages than I ever have in my whole life. Okay? And I used to really make fun of topical messages and put them down. Okay? And I always used to say, I think you should preach one topical message a year and then repent afterwards, you know? (laughs) And I really, I mean, my heart is in the books, and we're going to get back very soon to getting in the books. But I just felt like stuff is happening in our environment that I can't ignore. I can't just, we'll come to church and pretend nothing's happened. No. The Bible deals with culture. The Bible deals with life circumstances. And that's my answer to those who are condemning me for... You know, not being in the book right now. We'll get back to the books, okay? But hopefully I'm using Scripture and I'm mm-hmm. trying to keep it in context. So, David? Two things now. I was actually thinking this morning we might have to change the sign. <laughs> Do what? I was thinking this morning we might have to change the sign because you've been doing so many topical messages. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. 
I was going verse by verse through Romans 9 this morning, okay? You gotta, you gotta cut me some slack here. But now my real question. Um, okay. So, in, in view of God's sovereign will, how are we to understand the scriptures that speak of his repentance of certain things? Yeah, that's that, that's a good... I mean, there are... There are that things, you know, the Lord repented or he changed his mind. It makes it sound like he changed his mind. Like and, and I don't think God ever changed his mind because he didn't need to. He knew everything from eternity past. He knew every scenario, every, you know, I think it's more like because men respond then God didn't do what he would have done if they didn't respond. Which he even says that he will do. Yes, which, you know, so it's not, um, yeah, again, it's. We have to go by the preponderance of Scripture. You know, again, you know, you got to look at overall what's the Scripture say. The sovereignty of God is no doubt everywhere written. You know, when I'm reading through my Bible, every time I come across a passage that demonstrates sovereignty of God, I mark it in blue. You know, and boy, oh boy, there's a lot of blue in my Bible. Okay? Because God just, like I said, He controls everything. You know, when God told the Israelites, go worship me. Don't worry. Nobody will even want to take your stuff. Mm. You know, you just got to sit back and say, God is so big. These guys are going to walk right by your property that's empty. No one's there. Your livestock's there. Everything's there. And then, nah, I don't want that. And keep on going. Because God said, I'll take care of you. You're coming to worship me? I'll take care of your stuff. Don't even worry about it. No one will even want it. He didn't put up a force field that they tried to get in. And get, no, they didn't even want it. They just kept on going. Gary? Um... I don't know if I can get this out right, but um, <laughs> I um, I think one of our biggest problems with the sovereignty of God is that He doesn't do things our way. Oh, there's no doubt about it. I mean, our focus is not on Him and His will. We want things our way, and and we rebel against that, and but be a little more pliable and let him have his way and be grateful in that and, and attentive to his will. Uh, you might not have so much stress and struggle. We have the Word of God. We are to submit to the Word of God. We are to obey the Word of God. But then we also have the providence of God, and that's the events of life. I think that's another key point that when life events happen, we're to submit to those events as by God's sovereign hand. No, I don't like it. This wasn't my plan, but God, your plan's bigger than mine. You know, and besides, you can't really argue with God, so it's better just to bow down to the plan and go along and learn what he's trying to teach you in it because he's in control. All right, got a, got a good question here. Um, I guess this is Junior, right, Junior? You normally say that, but you didn't say it, but it's from Los Angeles. All right? I won't make any comments about California this morning. <laughs> he says, it's me again. If God is the author of evil, no if. Yes. I demonstrated that for the last half hour. Okay, there's no if. If Since. Okay, unless your if is a first class condition. If and it is. Okay, then I got you. Okay. Since. Since God is the author of evil... How do we reconcile this passage from James? Help me understand. Oh. And he's talking about James 1.13. Mm-hmm. Let, me, let me go to James. 1.13. <clears throat> well, let's back up to 12. It says, Blessed is the one who endures trials. 
Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised those who love him. No one who is undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God. Okay? Since God is not tempted by evil, he himself does not tempt anyone. Okay, so how does that go against what we're saying? God doesn't tempt men. God created evil. He controls evil. He's not tempting you saying, I'm trying to get you to do this. You're evil. And the very next verse tells us, he says, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. God doesn't need to try to tempt us to do evil. He doesn't want us to do evil. He just controls the evil that men have. He doesn't tempt people. We're tempted because what we read in Genesis, the thoughts and inclinations of his heart were only evil continually. Man is evil. So don't be blaming God for your temple. God tempted me to do. No, he didn't. Your evil heart tempted you in that direction. As you're mentioning that, are you being devil's advocate this morning? I don't know. <laughs> thinking out loud, which may be a bad problem. Oh boy. Uh, just thinking back, could so it, we have the stories in the divine council of God sending another spirit, Satan or whatever, to go do something. Right. Would that be considered God doing it, or because He's not really doing it, He's getting it done? But could well, because I mean, if He's tempting somebody through the use of another person, then is it really? No, oh, I see what you're saying. God is the secondary means. Right. He uses secondary means. Could that verse still apply even though he's in right. charge? He's okay. not actually doing the tempting. All right. For example, the divine council's meeting and he says, hey, I want to kill Ahab. Who will do it? He says, I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. God says, that's a good plan. Go do it. So he's leading the prophets falsely. You know, So they'll say, oh yeah, go to battle. Everything will be fine. No, you're going to die. But that's what God wants to happen. So, okay. Well, how, do, how far does this go? Who's the responsible agent? Is it the immediate agent or is it, you know, God? Well, like I said, I don't think God tempts people to do wrong. Our heart is the problem. We are evil. God controls and manipulates that evil for His glory. You know, He moves us to do, you know, if Joseph's brothers wouldn't have tried to hate him and tried to sell him into slavery and do what they did, where would Israel be? He saved them. He saved Israel. God brought a nation out from Egypt that had been taken care of and nurtured and it was an incubator. Raised them up in there. It's just, people, well, I know that it's difficult when we try to put all this stuff together because, again, our little pea brains can't really handle the majesty of God and the fact that God can be, the fact that God can be sitting in heaven and listening to all our prayers at the same time in different areas. And, you know, well, I'm praying for rain because I just planted grass seed. Well, so-and-so praying. I'm having a picnic. I'm praying for no rain. You know, so all this stuff's going up to God. And how does he get all that? He's God. And it's, you know, I tell you, I could blow a gasket because it's beyond comprehension. We just have to take the word of God at face value and say, I don't understand everything. I can't understand everything. We do want to understand everything. We want to put God in a box. We can control it and know exactly. Here's how it's going to work. And if I do A, B will happen. That's because we think we're somebody. Yeah. And I had a man tell me that one time. He was really angry at God and he cursed God because I, you know, if I do A and B, then God has to do C. I'm like, I don't know where you get your numbers from, but no, God does what he does, you know, and well, this and that, and that, you know. People go to Proverbs. Raise up a child in the way he should go. See, I raised my kid the way he should go, and he's not going that way. God lied. First of all, go back and understand the verse. 
All right? The verse doesn't say that at all, really. The basic thing of that verse is train up in the chi- a child in the way he should go. In other words, the bent of his life. What is he, you know, bent towards? Is he artistic? Is he manual? You know, how if you raise a child that way, he's going to continue on that way. It's not about you, you know, I teach him the gospel, he'll be a good saint all his life. That's not what that verse says. And Proverbs are Proverbs, which means probabilities, not do this and that will happen. It's just, it's a, it's our misunderstanding of the Word of God that causes us a lot of problems. And that's why, you know, Yeshua said, you'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. Truth is very freeing. when you. And I'm talking about in every area of life. When you really understand truth, it's free. Okay, but today, truth has a, a warning label on it. Okay, truth is uh, censored. You know, you're not allowed to say things that are true. You only have to say, you have to agree with the narrative or you're, you're in trouble. Or your social media gets deleted. That's right. You can delete all you want. I, you know, that's okay. I probably live, you know. Gary? Well, I don't know if this is true, but uh, you're uh, bringing up Israel and Egypt. And out of, out of the 400 years of slavery, he brought forth a nation of persecution and slavery. So is that how, I, we can't answer this, is that how he's working in America now? He's going to persecute us for a time and bring forth a new nation of righteous... I, I, used, to, I used to think that America deserves the wrath of God because mm-hmm. we're so evil. I don't believe that anymore because my views have changed. I think there's a lot of decent, God-loving people in this country. Yes. The problem is the media is evil. The government's evil. Uh, sports is evil. Hollywood is evil. These are a fraction of the population. I think we're seeing that mainline America are people who love God. You know, And so I, don't, I think God might be maybe going to do something here, but I don't know that it's... The majority of people don't want abortion, you know, mm-hmm. and we don't want evil politicians, but we we don't get to vote anymore, so they do what they want, you know. So, all right, I got this question, and I got to I got to answer, I got to deal with this. Says God is not commanding all men everywhere to do something they can't do, namely repent. Yes, He is. He is commanding men to do. He's commanding men to do it, and because he commands them to do it, doesn't mean they have the ability to do it. All right. It says he says the context is about national election, not salvation of the individual. Okay. Well, let me ask you this: What makes up nations? Individuals make up nations, and so it's just a nation that God chooses that's made up of individuals and other. That's. That's a cop-out to me on the sovereignty of God and what the Bible actually teaches. Okay, God chooses individuals. He chooses whom He will. That's kind of like the idea is that you know, He directs the boat, but people on the boat can have free will. Right? <laughs> That's a good illustration. As Jeff said, uh, you know, the people on the boat have free will, but God's directing the boat, so enjoy your free will. Okay? <laughs> You're going where the boat takes you.